0: Intended would be informing us as well as instructing us biblically in areas that we we deem important. The little mini-series that we're doing is called, Why a Sovereign Grace Affiliation? Trying to address the issues of our consideration of becoming a Sovereign Grace Church. What convictions we have, why are we considering this, uh, why consider affiliation period, secondly, why consider... Affiliating with Sovereign Grace of of all the options that may exist. So this morning, I want to share some thoughts with you that go with that series. But if you pulled it out of that series and let it stand alone, I think the benefit of it would be in answering this primary question. um, Why do people choose the churches that they attend? Why do you choose this church? Why are you here in this location versus down the block versus somewhere else? And maybe you've had to ask that question to yourself a little bit because uh, you've got some history with churches and where you've been. But it's a good question. Uh, I want to both answer that biblically so that we have a, a look again at the priorities that are in our lives as a local church, but also to answer it in light of considerations of sovereign grace and what we see in those churches, at what they are aiming at. So I've titled the message Like-Minded Priorities and Convictions in this realm of evaluating uh, church and, and being involved with one and what we are thinking in that arena. I want to read to you something from uh, Mark Devers' book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. This is from chapter one, as so he opens up this book. He says, this is how I began my sermon one Sunday morning in January, not too long ago. So, how's it going? Did you get enough sleep last night? Did you have trouble finding a good parking place this morning? Were the doors clearly marked? Did the people welcome you as you came in? Did the buildings seem nice and neat? I wonder, did the church's name make it more difficult for you to decide to come in? Or maybe that was part of the reason why you decided to come in. And when you did come in, were the people friendly and welcoming? Any trouble dropping the kids off? And what do you think about the stained glass? I know I have the best view of it, but it's really pretty, isn't it? Then again, maybe it's a little too traditional for you. Are the pews comfortable? Do you have a good view of all the activities from where you are sitting? Can you clearly see? Can you hear okay? Is it warm enough for you right now? (laughs) Uh, It never will be in here for some reason. Do you feel pretty comfortable? How about the bulletin? Nice, clear, simple, pretty straightforward, wouldn't you say? Not too complicated, maybe a little too staid. Did you notice all the announcements in it? And did you see all the programs listed in the church card? There are a lot of them, aren't there? Probably more than you've even read. Of course, it's easy to read, but I guess the print is kind of small, isn't it? And there aren't any pictures. I mean, it's it's so type-heavy. That probably tells you a lot about the church, doesn't it? You think this is probably the kind of church where they'd rather have a thousand words in the picture, right? And what about the people sitting around you? Are they the kind you like to go to church with? Yeah, I know you're too nervous to look around you right now. (laughs) But you know who they are. What do you think? Are they the right age? Are they the right race? Are they the right social class? Are they just like you? (laughs) It is... A bit unusual these days to read so much scripture in church, isn't it? You know, often find that done. And of course there's the music. You know, we're still trying to get some things worked out, as you can tell. Contemporary or traditional, classical or more modern, liturgical or more informal. As with every other church in America this very morning, there are probably some people who have come to this church in the past who this morning are out looking at other churches because they would like a different musical experience. And you know there are probably some people who are still here in part because they like this musical experience. Now, how's it been for you with the offering? Can you believe that? They actually took up an offering in public with visitors and all. That's the kind of thing that they tell you in seminary these days you should never do. How did it make you feel? Did it make you feel like the church is full of a bunch of money-grubbing people who just want to get from you when when you can, when they can? What are you doing here? Whether Whether you've been coming to this church for 50 years or this is your first Sunday, why do you come? The preacher does have a difficult job, doesn't he? The preacher has to be someone that you feel you could relate to and talk with and let your hair down with or trust in some measure. But he needs to seem holy, too, but not too holy. You know, he needs to be knowledgeable, but not too knowledgeable. He needs to be confident, but not too confident. He needs to be compassionate, but not too compassionate. And his sermon well, his sermon needs to be good enough, relevant enough, entertaining, and engaging enough, and certainly short enough. (laughs) Not going to happen either. But I take confidence from Mark Dever. I've sat through some of Mark Dever's sermons. Mark doesn't know what short is either. Uh, There's so much to consider when you are evaluating a church, isn't there? Have you ever really stopped to think about it? There are so many different things to think of. And as much as Americans move these days, we have to evaluate churches. It happens all the time. We have to ask ourselves, what makes a really good church? Those are good questions. Good questions for us to consider just in in terms of our own involvement with church and and why are we involved and what decisions led us to be involved in this particular church versus another church somewhere else. Or maybe the history of the churches that you've been involved with. It's very unusual these days to find people who uh, can point to maybe double-digit years in terms of their involvement in any one particular church. It tends to be you know, four, five, six years, waning interest, moved to another location. And maybe you could revisit, why were you in the churches that you have been in previous? What, what convictions form your approach to being a part of church? Well, certainly, if you were looking for another church, and I ask myself this question in evaluating or thinking through this message. If I had to relocate to another city for some reason and had to find another church, What would I look for? What would be the criteria that I would use to evaluate whether that church is a church that I and my family are going to be involved with to receive from and to sow into? Um, In light of our series, these would be some thoughts and some check marks, if you will, that I would use in thinking. If you were to tell us that you were relocating, uh, I would certainly encourage you to find a sovereign grace church in the city where you're moving. Any of you who have ever considered moving and have that conversation with us, you'll know that that's, a, that's something we're going to raise. Because we're concerned about the the place the local church is supposed to play in your life. And if you move to another location, is there going to be a, a church body that's going to care for you and going to be modeling biblically what we see here, uh, that we deem as critically important? Not... Not optionally important in our lives the, the local church is not an optionally important issue in our lives uh, you will You will know if you 've ever come to us and shared that you feel led to, to move or you 're considering moving. Think about what would be your exciting reasons for moving you know sometimes it 's well a better job offer you know man the job I have now is okay. this is a better job offer in this location or uh, it 's just a nicer place to live, I mean, just the living conditions are nicer, you know, which, which, you know, from New Orleans is not a difficult thing to accomplish. You know, it's just easier to find a nicer place to live, certainly easier to find a less humid place to live than here. Uh, So those would be some, some issues that you might share with us. Now, if you ever share that with the pastors uh, or the elders, those won't necessarily be things that we're going to jump up and down about. And even though you may be looking for us to jump up and down about it, what we're going to follow up is a list of questions that have to do with, is there a church there? that has these dynamics to it. And if you're not able to say, yes, there is, then then our concern would be that you have insufficiently done your homework on whether you should be even moving to that location. Now, why do I say that? I say that because I can defend that biblically. And as I said a couple of weeks ago, one of the things that would be a priority for us is anything that we're going to teach and admonish and lead in We need to be able to make a case for it from this word. And I can make a case for the New Testament church having a strong, influential place in everybody's life from this word. I can't make a case for whether you should move based on job or based on preferential living conditions or better weather. I can't make a biblical argument for that. And you can't either. I can make a biblical argument for the functioning local church in our lives. So this is not a small topic. I mean, most of us are going to be confronted with moving issues, with relocation thoughts. So this little checklist this morning, I think, would be a vital thing for you to tuck away in your own heart. But it also informs the way in which you're involved in the church right now. Whether these are convictions that are in your life, or whether you just come to church without necessarily, necessarily developing convictions in your own heart. So why am I involved here? What's the part I'm supposed to be playing in this church and identifying the church and my involvement in it? Mark Dever in this book says, what makes for a healthy church? A large congregation, plentiful parking, vibrant music? What is the church in her essence? What is to distinguish and mark the church? Now, he develops nine marks of a healthy church. in um, one of the resources that I highly recommend that's available on the Sovereign Grace Table, is Josh Harris's book that came out last year, I believe, Stop Dating the Church. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's not a difficult read, uh, but he's got a chapter in here that has ten essentials, or ten elements that he would suggest looking for if you were pursuing a New Testament church. Uh, a series that I highly recommend, more than I would recommend any other source of information on the local church, would be C.J. Mahaney's tape teaching series, A Passion for the Church. Of all the materials I've read, and and I've read a pretty good bit on the church and what it ought to be like, I don't think I could recommend a better resource than this one. It's 11 parts to it, and we managed to get a hold of some tapes, cassette tapes, on this series at a very reduced price. I think we've still got some of those left. If you'd like to listen to this whole series, if you buy the CDs, it's a little pricey, but if you buy the, uh, the tapes, you can get them real cheap. So if you still have a tape player, I recommend this highly to you. (laughs) I know, it's amazing we have to say that. Um, They are A-tracks, by the way. Um, No, (laughs) they're cassettes, I'm just kidding. Uh, But what's the church supposed to be like? John Scott uses this thought. These, then, are the marks of the ideal church. Love, suffering, holiness, sound doctrine, genuineness, evangelism, and humility. They are what Christ desires to find in his churches as he walks among them. Well, God does certainly have a plan for the church and what it's supposed to be like. And his priority list needs to be ours. Now, I could borrow from all these guys. They have great thoughts and insights. And this list could go on uh, pretty largely. But I'm going I'm to give three broad categories. And I'm going to fill in a couple of thoughts in each one that I think are critical when it comes to uh, what would I be looking for? If I were relocating to be a part of another church, what would I be looking for? In In a broad sense, I'd be looking for doctrine. Point number one, I have this in your outline. Point number two, I'd be looking for vitality in that church. And point number three, I would be looking for character in the people involved. Those would be the three major components that I would be looking for in a local church to be involved with it. Uh, these also would be criteria that we have looked at in terms of who is sovereign grace and do we want to be involved with them. Uh, so let me start with doctrine. Uh, I start with that one on purpose because the Bible is intended to inform our lives in such a way that everything that we do flows out of its revelation. So I, I think doctrine is the right starting point. It's not the only point, but it is the right starting point. From this passage in Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It says, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable. Here's what Scripture is profitable for. For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. This would be how Scripture is to be used in our lives. And if you will, those, those four dimensions, I believe, would be what preaching is supposed to accomplish. When we come together, we don't just read the Bible together, we preach through the Bible. And so the the flavoring of the church in terms of how it handles its doctrine, it's not simply the doctrines that are in the Bible. It is how the doctrines that are in the Bible are preached that make churches have the flavor that they have. When you go through orthodoxy, and that means just the orthodox beliefs of Christianity, you're going to find that in most churches, most Christian churches are orthodox. They believe in in the God who created the heavens and the earth. They believe in the Godhead. There's a trinity involved. They believe in the divinity of Jesus Christ. They believe in salvation by grace through faith. They believe in the inerrancy of the scriptures. This is going to be across the board in most Christian churches. That's what you're going to find by way of doctrine. And that's orthodox doctrine. But when I say doctrine, I mean how that doctrine is preached and presented and sprinkled upon the church because there are some churches out there that are orthodox that would agree with the orthodox Christian view that was just stated but yet the practice in that church or the emphasis in that church is dramatically different from this church over here who both have orthodox views so when we come to this element of of the word of god and handling the word and the doctrine that's in the word and how it's preached the bible is to be handled a certain way and it's profitable for teaching Informing us, instructing us about life for reproof and correction, altering our lives, altering our views. When you come into a church setting, you should come in contact with something that's going to rub you the wrong way. If you sit in here every week, week in and week out, and the messages never rub you the wrong way, uh, either there is a deficiency in the preaching or there's a deficiency in the listening. At some point, we should be at odds with what Scripture says really is the best way to do things. Because we're fallen creatures and we're learning. And the, and the reality is we need instruction. So the, the Bible is given us to preach it so that we can be taught and we can be corrected and reproved. Uh, but it's also for us to be trained in righteousness. So the training is more than just information here. It's not just do you have this memorized. It's do you have it going on in you. It's the difference between learning uh, by reading about how to play golf and going out and playing golf. I mean, go read a golf manual and see how good a golfer you'll be. You're going to stink. You're going to be dangerous until you get out there and train yourself. It's one thing to have in your head. It's another thing to have your whole body doing that golf swing thing. So there's a training dynamic here. Now, that training goes back to what we had learned from Ephesians chapter 4, that God's interested in his church being trained to do works of ministry. And the training dynamics belong to uh, apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. So all those gifts are given to communicate into the church. So in every church, there is a flavoring. That flavoring, though orthodox, comes from how doctrine gets handled, how it gets promoted, what topics get spoken on, and and why you should live the way you live. Well, you're going to have to be in a church a little while to hear What really is the motivation for the pastors and when they preach? Why are they saying that? And that's doctrinal issues. It's how you see your theology. Well, here's why the scripture is profitable. So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So the reason why I start with doctrine when evaluating a church would be because it is the doctrine and the handling of scripture that's going to adequately equip me and my family to walk in the purpose of God. So if this is not an important factor of a church, then being trained and equipped will not be an important factor. Oh, you might have interesting things. We might laugh a lot. I might can tell some good jokes. I might be able to hold your attention, drum up stories and entertain you and, and just think, oh, well, wasn't that service great? But if it's not doctrinally driven, it is a deficient church. So you you would rather have A person who speaks doctrinally than one who is entertaining. One who can hold your attention because they have dynamic about them. More important that you have doctrine than you have dynamic. So I'd be looking for a church that is doctrinally driven. Psalm 19. Turn to Psalm 19 with me. Psalm 19. Here's what the Bible says about itself. Verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Now, if we just stop right there, and we... Believe what the Bible says about itself. That scripture is the means for these three things in our lives. And I think every one of us are looking for these three things. The restoration of our soul. Wisdom in how to live life. And rejoicing in our hearts. You boil your life down to what are you after in life? You know, why do you want to move to take that new job in that new location where it's a nicer place to live? Why why do you want that? Because I'm after these. I want my soul restored. And I think maybe that will help. Or I, I I want wisdom in my life on how to do things. I mean, every dimension of our lives involves wisdom, doesn't it? I mean, we're always looking for how do I do this? How do I relate to people? You know, the conflict class that we're having that's you know going to go through the next month and a half here is intended to inform us with godly wisdom on how to have relationships with each other. How to overcome conflict and how to do it with... God's way? Or how about a rejoicing heart? Everybody in this auditorium this morning wants a rejoicing heart. There's not a one of us who doesn't want to sign on for that. How do you get there? When life bashes you in the side of the head, when something unexpected happens, when some tragedy hits, when you get in touch with your own sin, when you stumble and fall, and you need your soul restored, where's the restore button? What button do you press? What idea? You want to go read a book? You want to go attend a meeting? You want to go to a conference? You want new friends? You, you want, what do you want? You want to lose weight? Right? We're all the time looking for how to restore the soul. But what if we really believe that God was serious in what he said right here in this word? What if he said the law of the Lord is perfect? It's not lacking anything. Many times in the Bible, when the Bible uses the word perfect, not necessarily here, but normally it's dealing with a maturity dimension. And the Bible would be that which is complete. It's completely mature. There's, it's not like it's deficient in any way. It's not like you know what? God just ran out of time, or He knew Bibles would get too big, so He He left out parts that we might need. It's complete. So everything in my life that needs to get addressed is addressed right here. That's a strong statement. You, know, you and I live today in an age where churches are integrating all kinds of thoughts into the human equation. How to solve human behavior problems is being met all over the place. Now, what churches do, which is a rather dangerous thing that they do, is they they use the Bible along with other things. Now, here's how here's how you won't notice this is being done. The pastor opens up, okay, this morning, turn to blah, 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 passage, and we're going to read from here, and he reads that passage. And so the, the appearance is this church teaches the Bible. And then when he's done with that passage, he moves from that passage into uh, a personal story and two jokes and an anecdote and an illustration and application. And all along the way, you didn't learn anything about the Bible. You didn't learn about why it was given, how that contextual passage was given, why God gave it, how it doctrinally connect, connects to the rest of the Bible and what the rest of the Bible says. You heard something just get extracted from here for the purpose of somebody being able to talk to you about a topic. Now, you know, in, in 90% of churches, I don't know what the real number would be. Most people never notice that's what's happening. They think the Bible's being taught. But quite often, you don't learn anything about the Bible. The Bible is simply used to teach you about other things. And so that's where the church has become a, a proliferating effect of self-esteem teachings and uh, psychology and ideas that come from other places, religious traditions that get taught. Where does all that stuff come from? Well, it doesn't come from the Bible. But the church and the, and the pastor who begins with the Bible, then he starts quoting all these other ideas or incorporating his own experience in such a way that you walk away thinking, well, what that person really needs is a is better self-esteem. I'm just picking on that one because it, it, it's one that was prevalent in the church for years. But but that's not a doctrinal component. That's a man trying to deal with human behavior. And so you may be in a church that doesn't teach the Bible doctrinally. They just have ideas. And we want to help you with some ideas. Well. That's not how this Bible is presented. It's a perfect word. In this Bible, in this doctrinal Bible, is all that you and I need for life and godliness. By the Holy Spirit, of course. I'm just dealing with the doctrinal component here. Now look over in Psalm 119 for a moment. Psalm 119. If I was really, really convinced that... The need for rejoicing in my heart, the restoration of my soul, or wisdom for life and all the things that are about to happen to me in my life. Wisdom is here. Uh, Restoration of my soul is here. Rejoicing for my heart is here. If I really believe that about this word, then I would sound like the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. See, if I, if I really love God's Word, then it is going to be a source of meditation for me. You know, Too many times the church develops this you know, statement of I love something, but you can't find it significantly in our lives. If we were all asked, do we love the Word of God? Oh, we love the Word of God. Well, biblically, if I love the Word, it will be my meditation. It's going to find a place of significance in my life. In the same way that sometimes we can drift off into sinful behavior and, and you know we're trying to lay claims to our Christianity by while we're practicing sin, we're saying, but you know, I really do love God. I really do love God. Uh, you know, I understand the sentiment of that and, and I understand what's trying to be said in that, but, but what would be more accurate would be to say, At this moment, I love this pleasure more than I love God. Now, I do love God, but not like I love this pleasure. That would be a more accurate statement than practicing sin and saying, but I really do love God. Well, in this moment, that's being called into question. No matter what your words say, your actions are screaming, you love the pleasure of sin more than you love the glory of God. And a similar thing can be said about the word. We can say we love the word. and We can say it's sufficient all we want. But if we don't go to it, like it has the answers for us, it has the wisdom and the restoration and the rejoicing that we're looking for, we can say we love it. But it's not very convincing that we really do. Look at what this psalmist says in, in verse 104 of Psalm 119. He says, From your precepts I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. this This is a verse with teeth in it. From your precepts, God, from your word, I get understanding. Which means, apart from your word, the revelation that comes about how to do life, how to address problems, how to move forward, how to overcome, how to relate to God, how to deal with my fellow man... If I don't get it from the precepts of God, this psalmist hates wherever you did get it from. Because he hates alternatives. Alternatives to truth. Alternatives to this rich treasure house that we have. Why? Because from this, I get understanding. This would be a passion for any of us who preach to you guys. Because we hold this Bible is adequate for our lives. It addresses our lives in a sufficient manner. And so that's why you will find me, Peter, Matt, or Jeff, or anybody who speaks in this church from this pulpit, you will find us taking odds with other ideas on occasion. And they they may be some of the ideas you grew up with. They may be ideas that in the previous church you were in, those were big ideas. And you may find us or think us unkind, that we would be so matter-of-fact or so uh, opposing of those ideas. You know, there are occasions when we will bring up issues that we disagree with. There are occasions when we try to do it very carefully. There are other occasions where I'm going to be very sarcastic about it. You know, I have the gift of sarcasm. I don't apologize for that. It can be a problem, but the Apostle Paul used it, so I feel justified. Uh, But there's a place where the body of Christ needs to have this attitude. From your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. You and I live in a city where many religious views are false ways. Some of us grew up in false ways. We didn't even grow up in orthodoxy where we were saved by grace through faith alone. We grew up linking our salvation to works and to how good a person we were. Can I just tell you, I hate that. I'm not casual about it. And if you're here this morning, you're going, well, you guys are a little rabid. No, no, actually, we're biblical. I'm, I'm just personifying for you Psalm 119, verse 104. From these precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. If it's a false way, I hate it. You might think this is weird, but, you know, on my way in, on Sunday mornings, on my way in, I drive past, uh, probably a few churches, but at least one that I know of. That does not present the truth about salvation. It presents an alternative. Every morning when I drive past that church on Sunday morning, I pray for God to keep people from it. I pray for people to have... I pray this morning. I pray this morning. This is how I pray this morning as I drove past that church. Lord, let them have less this week than they had last week. Let them have less. Let more of them be leaving. Let them be finding truth. Let them go after the truth that's in this word. And why is that? Because I'm some, some mean intolerant individual... No, because I know that in this word lies the restoration of their souls, uh, rejoicing in their hearts, wisdom for their lives. That's what I know is here. So when I know they're going somewhere else to get some other idea that the Bible hates and therefore I hate it as well, that's not a small issue. So if you're sitting in a church, if you're evaluating a church, at some point the preaching in that church had better hate something. I know that's uncomfortable because sometimes we want to come into a church setting. It's kind of like, man, I thought Christianity was about being nice. And, you know, just get along with everybody and everybody's okay. And, you know, that pastor, man, he kind of gets he gets bent out of shape. Here goes Keith again. He's off on that thing. Or Peter. Look, at Peter's airborne, jumping up and down again. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's because we believe something about this word that we know will benefit God's people. And every other idea is going to take the place of a truth that will help you. And therefore, it won't help you. It won't bring understanding. It will bring confusion to you. So if you're in a church and you're evaluating it, the church had better take odds with some things. It better not just always just be nice, 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 nice. It better be a point where the church comes in and says, that's wrong. That practice isn't right. And then be careful how you say it. Be kind how you say it. Or uh, in some cases, be obnoxious how you say it. However, you need to make sure you get the point across. Make sure it's going to be heard, though. But, but let me let me move through a couple of quick thoughts here about being doctrinal. I've already mentioned a little bit about this first one. Being exegetical or being expositional in preaching. Uh, that, those are just big fancy preaching words for make sure you're being uh, faithful to the text. When God inspired the writers to write, he had something in mind for them to write down. He had a purpose for delivering that particular word to that particular writer at that particular time and to say it in that particular context. When I go to use that verse as a preacher, I I better not make it not be able to fit back into that passage when I'm done with it. Pulled it out of the Bible. I've said all these things about it. Now I'm going to put it back in the Bible and now it doesn't fit the context. Or it doesn't even fit with the rest of the Bible. That's doctrinal preaching. See, doctrinal preaching doesn't just take a verse... Say something one week, two weeks later, take another verse and absolutely contradict everything that was said two weeks before when that other verse was used. The whole Bible holds together. The whole Bible has doctrinal cohesiveness. And so expositional preaching is going to be faithful to the text as it was given when it encourages us on how to apply it. Now, This is not always done. When you listen to many preachers, and I'll, I'll set your ears off for this, so that you're di- if you're dialing through channels, which quite honestly I hope none of you do, but uh, if you're dialing through channels, I just don't think there's a lot out there that's worth dialing into. But if you dial through channels, and I actually dialed through a channel and got this guy preaching the other day, and, and he was doing something like this, and it just made my mind begin to wander into his message a little bit. He was preaching about, uh, I, you know, he was, he was so erratic in what he was saying, I don't know exactly which text he was coming from. But it had to do with Jesus and a boat and water and the seashore. And uh, so he's off talking about this. But this, this would be an example of, of not necessarily using the text the way the text was given. If, if I were to open the Bible up and read the story about Jesus was in the boat and the disciples were with him. And, and you know, there, there's types and shadows. There's typology in the Bible. Um, there's allegorical components of the Bible. But when you preach the Bible, there's not a license to turn everything into an allegory, to where everything in the Bible means something, and everything represents something. You know, the the inspiration in Scripture, I don't believe, can be carried to that sort of a thing. So when somebody reads about Jesus being in a boat, uh, I think, you know, when you start getting into the water being the point, I think you're missing the point, when you start talking about... Well, you know, some of you here this morning that, you know, the water represents the ebb and the flow of life. Tide comes in and tide goes out. And, you know, right now, some of you guys, you may feel like you're at low tide. You're at low tide, you know, and Jesus got in that boat. It was probably low tide. And, you know, when it's low tide, sometimes it stinks. Doesn't it stink at low tide? You ever been around low tide? And so maybe your life stinks right now because you're at low tide, brother. But, you know, Jesus got in the boat. Now, the boat represents strength to rise above the water. That's what, okay, that's, the boat. that's what the boat's about here. That's not expository preaching. Now, maybe I do want to make some points about the fact that life is hard. There are better texts for me to get at it than that one. And I could be more faithful to what was given than to use the Bible that way. And, and yet, many folks are sitting in churches week in and week out saying, no, the Bible's a basis for what we believe. Sort of. Sort of the Bible is the basis for what you believe. But is it doctrinally the basis? When I come to this passage, and, you know, and I find Jesus walking on the water, uh, this, is, this is not a chemistry experiment that I want to get into. What I want to see is the greatness of God. Because that's what this book is about. This book is about God. It, it's about revealing God. It's about the greatness of God. Which which leads to my next point. God-centered theology. If I were looking for a church, I would want the preaching and the handling of the Word to be first and foremost interested in highlighting the glory of God. I would want the theology to be about God, not just about man, not just about seven band-aids for common bobos. There's way too many messages like that going on in the church today. Does that mean we should never preach that way? Sure we should. The Bible's real. It touches the realities of our lives. But it touches the realities of our lives by first setting this great big God before us and preparing us to worship him. Look in these verses that I put in your outline. Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Psalm 135, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and in earth, in the seas... And in all the deeps. Isaiah 46, verse 9. Remember the former things long past. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Now, at the end of the day, when you and I are done reading the Bible, applying the Bible, talking about the Christian life, how to live things out, what about sin? What about man? What about our involvement? What about what God's going to do? At the end of the day, however we've handled all these doctrines, this statement had better be true. What God just said, my purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. How much good pleasure, God, will you accomplish? All my good pleasure. Well, wait a minute, God. What about if man disobeys you? What about if we sin? What about if we refuse to believe you? Oh, you know, you've got that big, giant hill to climb, God, the will of man. Now, I'm saying that. That's my gift of sarcasm, by the way. Uh, I'm saying that because your choices in your theology are either to elevate God or to elevate man. And you're either going to have a God who would like to do a whole bunch of things, but you see, he just can't. Because, you know, man and his sin won't do this, won't believe. And so when we do that, we develop a theology that thrusts man as the high player in this equation. Now, is man in this equation? Absolutely. Is he in it in a way that's easy to to explain? Not necessarily. But I want to make sure my theology at the end of the day is going to see my purpose will be established. This is God speaking of himself. My purpose will be established. And I will accomplish all my good pleasure. At the end of the day, guys, that needs to be said. I, I want to be in a church that finds God being glorified as the most significant theological feature in the Bible. Not man's contribution, not man's weakness, not sin on the scene, although all those things are clearly all throughout the Bible. I would want my theology to be God-centered. Mark Dever, <clears throat> Mark Dever in his book here, Nine Marks of the Healthy Church, says, questions of who God is and of what he is like can never be considered irrelevant to the practical matters of church life. Different understandings of God will lead you to worship Him in different ways. And if some of those understandings are wrong, some of those ways in which you approach Him could be wrong as well. This is, after all, a major theme in the Bible, even if it is almost entirely neglected these days. Listen, quite honestly, I think the church is a little bored with God. A little bored with sermons that are about God. We'd rather talk about life. We'd rather talk about human life and what's going on and how you doing and, than talk about God. I remember seeing this or, or maybe just having it be more stark. We're driving in the car, I don't know, a few weeks ago. Uh, I think it was just my girls were with me. And the song comes on the radio. And the song. is is simply about God. It it almost sounded like somebody opened up a systematic theology, this section about the the immutable characteristics of God, and and wrote a song out of it. And uh, all the focus was on God, on his character, on what he's like, and it, it, it caught my attention so drastically because there are so few songs that are strictly about God. Most songs are about us, and they're about our struggle, and they kind of bring God into the picture, but ultimately they're about us and our lives, with God being a part of that scene. This was song strictly about God. It was was just songs about Him. The the words were all about Him, telling something about His character, something about what He's done, something about His glorious nature. Um, That's unusual today. It's very unfortunate. Because Christianity then moves away from this central defining theme. You and I exist for the glory of God. And I know you you probably should be weary of hearing us say that. But the problem is, I don't know if you hear it anywhere else. Turn on the radio, turn on Christian television, listen to music. Very seldom will you hear God-centered theology. And so if if I am pursuing another church, I I am looking for the theology of that church, which is the way the Bible is handled, to be God-centered and God-glorifying first. And then man's interest comes into play underneath that bigger umbrella. Now, in saying that, I am highlighting the reason why we, as a church, are Reformed in our theology. Because Reformed theology has God's interest first above man's. That's not the case for all theologies, but it is the case for Reformed theology. I put three quick notes of Reformed theological emphasis. It's first an accurate biblical picture of sin and man's condition. Reformed theology allows man to be seen fully in the condition that he is in and God to be seen fully in the condition that he is in. Now, in doing so, it establishes the parameters for our relating to him. It establishes God in His greatness. It establishes God as worthy. It establishes the awesomeness of God. It puts the amazing in amazing grace. There's a whole bunch of churches, way too many, that can sing amazing grace and not be amazed while they sing it. Why does that happen? Poor theology. Mere words. Well, there's grace in that church. Yeah. But it lacks a punch. It lacks lacks substance to it. When you and I sing Amazing Grace, out of the context of knowing my sinfulness before God, my bondage and affliction of sin, owning my life, and yet I am standing here with a delight in Him, and He is taking delight in me, That is amazing grace. And that's not just some feeling. That is a well-thought-out, doctrinally-arrived component that produces feelings. Reformed theological emphasis keeps God as the solution. In way too many churches who integrate other things into their preaching, who don't see this as the essential component that will change our lives, uh, what they have done is they have actually diminished the damage that sin has caused and brought and elevated man's ability to deal with his own problems. And as a result, this is where theology matters. As a result of poor theology, they thrust too much of the sin-solving component back into the lap of man. When, When psychology came on the scene and injected itself into the church, What what always would amaze me is that somebody who could go see a counselor and come in to see us for counseling would already have been given solutions that didn't involve God. Well, you just need to understand something about your past, or you just need to come to grips with this thing in your life, or you just need to, to stop doing this and start doing that. And nowhere in the equation was God. So, in other words, God was irrelevant to solving man's problems. Well, the only way you could arrive at that is you have an unbiblical view of sin. And you also have an unbiblical view of man. But doctrinally, the Bible would disqualify you and I from being able to overcome our own issues. And sin would be, would be such a player on the scene that it owns us. And we are slaves to it. And the only one who has the keys to set us free is God himself through Christ and the cross. And so if, if that's not part of your counseling, then you cannot be receiving good counsel. Because somewhere along the line, you are being told you're capable and adequate to handle your own issues. Modern, modern psychology is moving a little bit away from the behavioral dynamics and moving now into the genetic components of man. So now what you're hearing now is what, what they call biopsychology. You are the way you are because of something biological, something genetic in you. Well, if I have a, a physical issue, that's why I am the way I am, then guess what the solution is going to be? It's going to be a little pill that you're going to be given that's going to make up for something that's in your body that's not going right. This is going to fix it. Well, again, it's an unbiblical view of man. Does man have biological problems? Yes, he does. Do we have behavioral problems? Yes, we do. Do we all come from dysfunctional families? Yes, we did. But the remedy to everything that those things have have affected in us is completely in God and necessitates his grace to come into this life and change me. Now, the minute I elevate man... Listen, the church elevates man when man becomes a bigger player in the salvation equation than he really is. And man becomes a guy who's got to find God as though God's lost. He's got to find God and, and uh, his decision is the key component in the salvation equation. Well, then all these things, what you're doing is you're saying inherently in man, there is potential. There is ability in man. So what you just need to do is teach man and therefore he'll make his way to a better person. That is not a reformed view of man. And that's not a biblical view of man. Biblically, man is dead in his trespasses and sins. Dead. You know, he's not moving around a little bit. He is dead. He's not got a little bit of freedom so he can exercise his free will, but there's a little bit of freedom. He is enslaved to sin. If God doesn't come by His grace and unlock those keys... You and I can't reach out of our own volition and come up with a key and put it in the lock and be willing and want to be set free. That's not biblical. If I'm going to go to a church, I want to go to a church that exalts the grace of God. The reason why there's a key in my life is because God came with the key and made sure he put it in my resistant, I don't want your help hand. And then when he put that gracious key in my hand, then he made me want to stick it in the lock. Because apart from him working in my life, I'd want to throw the key back in his face. How dare you tell me I need your help? Oh, unless you don't feel that way about man. Well, man wouldn't do that, now would he? I don't know, read the Bible and watch the news. (laughs) Would man do that? I tend to think he would. And if I didn't do that, it must be the grace of God that has worked in my life. Third element about doctrine. If I were pursuing another church, I would want to be in a church that had a charismatic practice and pursuit. That the doctrine of the essentialness and vitalness of the Holy Spirit's activity in the life of the church is a non-negotiable. It's not something that's well, we're, you know, we're okay with that. You know, you know. Some of our people practice this, you know, and we're, we're okay with that. This is not an okay matter. When you read it in the Bible, the Bible doesn't make charismatic Pentecostal distinctives an okay matter. It makes them an essential matter in the life of the church. Look at these passages. Luke 24, verse 49. Behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Jesus doesn't Treat the empowerment, the coming upon dynamic of the Holy Spirit like it's an option. Look, if some of you guys want to wait in Jerusalem, great. Some of you just want to go on ahead, that's okay too. You know, whatever. Because nobody leave Jerusalem until this occurs. You will be clothed with power and you will be my witnesses. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. This is, this is not a, a negotiable dynamic for the Christian. These are guys, at this point, when Jesus speaks these things to them, there isn't any more understanding of the gospel dynamic that they're awaiting. He has died for their sins. He has been risen from the dead. He, has been, he is being glorified by the Father. And they are being commissioned and sent. They have the good news. They've walked with Jesus for three years now. They've got a handle on that. But yet, he tells them, Wait. Wait in Jerusalem, don't even try and go out and do this. Today, sadly, too many churches have made the operation and pursuit of the charismatic dimensions of the Holy Spirit optional. You know, some people like that, some people don't. Well, I'm with Gordon Fee on this one. The bottom line is the generally ineffective witness and perceived irrelevancy of the church in Western culture. Here, it seems to me, is where the real difference between Paul and us emerges, where, in a culture similar to ours, the early believers seem to have been more effective than we are. I am convinced this is due in large part to their experience of the reality of the Spirit's presence. The Spirit, as an experienced reality, was for Paul and his churches the key player in all of Christian life, from beginning to end. The Spirit covered the whole waterfront. Power for life, growth, fruit, gifts, prayer, witness, and everything else. I'm with Gordon Fee. I don't believe that the Christian life was intended to be lived with the ministry of the Holy Spirit being a minor player that maybe we'll talk about. Maybe we won't in this church. That's not the tone of the New Testament. That's the tone that people take when church history has beat on the Holy Spirit's issues for too long, and now it's become a sensitive issue, and now we're just not going to talk about it. You will not get that tone from the New Testament. There is no apology for the activity of the Holy Spirit found in this book. People have spoken to, oh, that's weird. What was? It was weird then. <laughs> but there's no apology for it being in here. There's instruction on how to use it, but there's not apology like, oh, okay, well. All right. The Corinthians were, I hate to tell you they were a Pentecostal church. And, you know, the ugly stepchild. But, on, you know, on the other side of the tracks here, you don't know, got the Galatians. And, you know, they didn't have those problems because they were so mindful in their doctrine. And th- th- those, that's not how the New Testament's written. There's no apology for the activity of the Holy Spirit. There's a dependency in the New Testament for the Holy Spirit's activity. So, I get very concerned because I've watched this dynamic happen. When people who have left, for instance, they've left this church, they moved somewhere else. I actually had a conversation with somebody not too long ago who had done that. Years ago, they were part of this church. They left, moved, uh, selected another church to be a part of in another setting, and I asked them about their involvement in the church, and they told me what church they were going to. It was not a charismatic church. Uh, I asked them, you know, why did you, you choose that church? Which is really what we're talking about today. What's the criteria for why you're going to choose the church you're going to be involved with? The reasons that they gave were because of the youth ministry. I chose the church because of the youth ministry. Is that a horrible reason? No, it's just not necessarily a biblical one. You chose a program rather than choose what was clearly in this book. See, this is where we are in wanting to be a church more fully restored to New Testament principles. Where, where's the church going to be years from now when, when God said, here's the blueprint for the church? And in church history, we've drifted from this thing to where instead of the emphasis today being on uh, apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers, uh, or on the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the church. The emphasis today is on the size of the building, the service times, whether there's good parking. What kind of programs do you have? Is there a coffee kiosk in the the lobby? Uh, These are the things that we're really concerned about when it comes to a church. At what point does a church have a real problem on its hand being the New Testament church because it's got all those things, but it doesn't have any room for apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers and evangelists and the ministry of the Holy Spirit? Can you see where we're drifting as a Christian church over time? These were the things the first century thought was critical for you and I to walk in as a church. Today, it's, well, what time do y'all meet? Oh, I mean, that's, that's not going to work for me. Um, I don't like to get up that early on a Sunday. And, and man, you know, it's a 20-minute drive to your church. And, you know, I just, you know I just, I'm just going to stay going local where I am. Somebody here, you, you turn to the page where that's really the concern for you. You, you, you show me the passage where Paul says, don't drive more than 15 minutes to church. <laughs> or or make sure that there's a dynamic youth program. But, you know, i got to say, there's, there's way too many people that I've had conversations with through the years that those are the things that have led them to be a part of the church that they're a part of. Now again, are, are we against these things? No, we're not against them. We think there's there's use, and we make use, of children's ministries and Uh, youth programs. But we do not elevate them to the point of being decision makers about who the New Testament church is to be. You know, some churches, they'd lose half their people if they ever decided to do a youth program differently or do away with a youth program. But those people would have no biblical leg to stand on. So doctrinally, we want to be driven by the scriptures, into our practice as a local church. And I mentioned in the last point, the doctrinal component of being local church focused. Um, I'll just let you read the little headline there. There's just way too much out there today that's being proliferated as Christianity that doesn't have anything to do with the local church, whether it's media ministries, cyber church, uh, Bible studies that meet under all kinds of contexts and things. that They're not local churches, but they're trying to be what the local church is. I think biblically, we want to be constrained into being the local church and not finding Christianity from the radio. Well, I get my Christianity from from the radio or from watching so-and-so who comes on on Sunday mornings. Uh, That is not a biblical concept. That's not one we want to gravitate towards. So local church focus. Doctrine second major category would be vitality. If I'm going to choose a church, I want a church where there's vitality, where there's life, where there's reality, where people are not just... Showing up week in and week out for a social gathering that has moral overtones to the meeting. But the people's lives don't look like what's being discussed. I don't want to be a part of that church. A church should have vitality. It should have passion to it. It should be measurably passionate about what the scriptures promote. And sadly, that is not the case in many denominational settings. I think I put in your outline, there's a big difference between the Methodism of today and that of John Wesley. not trying to be ugly about Methodism, but I think if John Wesley were here, I don't know that he would recognize a Methodist church if he walked into it. The passion of what was in the heart of that man, when the orthodox views that he got from the Bible floated in his heart, are not present in many, many settings called Methodism today. I can't say all. I don't know all Methodist churches. There are many of them that maybe are doing very well. But what, what is being declared, I mean, you have a church that's trying to figure out whether a homosexual should be ordained to lead the, the Methodist church. But, you know, if that's where your argument is, uh, the trail that leads you to that argument, even have that argument, you know, we're just, I don't, you know, this is home, hopefully it's not an arrogant statement, but I don't foresee us having a business meeting anywhere in the future where that's going to be a point of discussion for us. And for it to become that, I would have to wonder, what is the trail like that led us to the point where that even became a topic? Along the way, what did we part with and stop doing a long time ago? That's a passion issue. It's a great quote in there from Why Small Groups uh, that really highlights the tone and the passion that was in Methodism when it began. These were not people, I'm going to leave you to read the, read the quote, it's kind of lengthy, but these were not people who casually were engaged with transformation. These are people giving license to each other. Get involved in my life. Ask me questions. Draw me out. Examine my walk. I want to grow. There's a passion for God to grow in their lives in a greater way. So they created opportunities where people would be influential in their ability to be righteous and their restraint of sin in their own lives. And let me just cover these three thoughts real quickly with you. By way of vitality or passion, I believe there needs to be vitality in basically these three larger areas. Vitality and worship in a local church. Vitality and sanctification. In a local church, and vitality in the Great commission, if I was going to be in a church, I would be looking for those three areas of vitality: vitality and worship. You know that term worship is thrown around today. it's, it's on billboards, if you, you know, worship services, and there's times underneath it. But you know if you went inside that meeting, they maybe you ought to change the name of it it might not ought to be called worship service. It it might ought to be called the Night of the Living Dead service. Because there are some folks that are in the service that, you know, music is going on, and opportunities for worship in the worship service are going on. But worship, you want to know what worship looks like? You want a good frame of reference for worship? I'm putting your outline. Go read Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 is that passage where Isaiah comes into the presence of God. Now, Isaiah is not a stranger to God. He knows quite a bit about God. But he has an encounter there that furthers his knowledge of God. He says, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. You want to know what worship is? Very, very brief definition of worship. Worship is how you respond when you see God. I don't think it needs much more of a lengthy definition than that. Worship is how you respond when you see God. So if I respond like, that's what I look like in church, you know, worship service. My problem isn't so much with worship. My problem is with seeing God. I've apparently not seen too much, which sometimes is a theological problem in the church. The church doesn't teach doctrinally correctly. Therefore, people don't get in awe of God. Not overwhelmed with God, they got a big man and a little God going on. When when Isaiah sees the Lord, do you remember his response? If, you know, Moses, same thing. When the presence of God comes, these guys get awful humble awful fast. This is the prophet Isaiah, for goodness sake. We're still talking about this guy. So if there ever was a guy who could have been arrogant in the Old Testament, he's got like the biggest book going, he could have been it. But when he gets in the presence of God, his response to God was if he had any breath in him, it was Woe is me, I am undone, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. Well, how did he get this revelation of uncleanness? He saw the holiness and the purity of God. And he got humble, and he got wow, he got, oh my goodness, I'm going to die. I'm going to die in the presence of God. Why did he feel that way? Because he saw God. There's too many services today where there's no response like that. There's no awesome sense of God. God comes to Isaiah in this moment with mercy. takes the tongs from the altar and picks up the the hot coals and he purifies his lips. The mercy of God coming into his setting. And his encounter with God, when God begins to say, hey, I've got something to do. Who am I going to send? It's that man who says, here am I. Send me. See, worshipers turn into servers as well. So when you watch this occur, worship's to be a sense of vitality, it's to have life to it. It's not this lifeless expression. When we come in here and we sing songs, those songs simply are opportunities for you and I to express what we have experienced about God's grace. And if I've got nothing to express, it's because I haven't seen anything. Which should be very bothersome to any of you that are here this morning. That your worship is too subdued. Listen, I don't come across anybody in the Bible who when they they saw God in his radiance, which by the way, when I open this Bible and read it, I can see God in his radiance. So this is a doctrinal issue as well as an experiential issue. I don't see anybody in the Bible when they see the glory of God stopping with this huge amount of composure going, okay, let me think. What would be appropriate right now? Falling down, um, saying, oh my goodness, acting like I'm aware of my sin. Let me think for a second, because I've read all those things in the Bible. Does anybody do that? They get in the presence of God, and the glory of God shows up in their midst, and they see the glory of God, whether you see it in this Word, or you see it before God, they fall down before Him. They say, oh, there's longings, there's holy, holy is the Lord. The you ever have times, I will have times, and this takes meditation for me as well to get to this point. There will be times in this personal prayer, this walking with God, that I begin to ponder the amazement that I'm even having a conversation with God. And I begin to meditate on that. And I begin to think of the God of this universe is listening to me right now. Not just listening, he's inclined to me right now. He is wanting to bless my life right now, and I'm flat overwhelmed and amazed that he would let me have an audience at all. Now, why am I amazed by that? Because doctrinally, I am informed of what a rebellious sinner I am apart from his grace. Now, what I'm not informed by is. Unlike all the other saps that don't choose God, I chose Him. And I made Him the objects of my affection. So it certainly makes sense as to why God enjoys my company. Because I'm smarter than all the other jerks on the planet. Gift of sarcasm as well. I know that when I'm standing before God, I have no business here. And I am overwhelmed by grace, informed by Doctrine and worship is the expression, whether it comes out in extreme gratitude, whether it's a kick in my step, whether it's hands extended, whether it's clapping violently, whether it's shouting to God, you are great! Because I have seen something that causes me to have a response of worship. I want to be a part of a church where that's the effect of what's taught and what's lived upon the people. That's not the effect. If I can't check that one off, And this is not just, well, you know, is that the effect on the first four rows of the church? Well, I'm willing to say that's a start. But if this is a church that's indifferent to God and who he is, that's not a church I want to be a part of. It's not a church I want to raise my family, unless I'm called to be a missionary. Right? Well, go there and labor amongst them until they kind of get it. Well, if you're looking to join a church, these are things you ought to be looking for. In that church, vitality, vitality in worship, vitality in application. What's the level of passion to not only have a doctrine of we wrestle not with flesh and blood, not only have a doctrine of wrestling not with, but have a practice of wrestling. There's a big difference in there. We have a doctrine of holiness, but do we have a pursuit of holiness? Does it bug you? Are you affected by falling short of a life of holiness that's been given to us by the presence of the Spirit of God in our lives. Does that bug you? Is there an urgency to put on righteousness? The Bible talks about... You can have a doctrine of putting on righteousness. Some of us have great doctrine about being the righteousness of God in Christ. But when you look at one another's lives, it don't look too righteous. Oh, but doctrinally we are. You know, it's okay. Don't, Don't get all lathered up. It's okay. I have a doctrine. The doctrine of being the righteousness of God in Christ. Great. How about having a practice of being the righteousness of God in Christ? I don't don't want to just go to a church where I'm informed about the doctrine of righteousness. I want to live it. I want to experience it. I want to have things in place that are helping me to do that. I want pastors and preachers and uh, covenant group leaders and friends who have a passion who by their example provoke me to want to read the Bible more. Who by their example cause me to examine my own life, who by the jokes they don't laugh at, and by the places that they do go and the way they prioritize their time, my life comes under examination. I want that in a church. I want to be in a covenant group setting where somebody's gonna ask me a question that's that's not gonna be a so, how was your golf game this week? It's great. I had a great round too the other day. Oh, that's excellent. You fish lately? Wonderful. And that's, that's fellowship? Well, that's a start of fellowship. That's kinda of like high. Nice to meet you. But when we pursue something deeper than that, is there anything in place in that church that takes us beyond those things into something more deep? Into something more effective, into something more real? That's vitality of application. And then the church needs to be have vitality about evangelism. Does the church have a passion for the lost? Does it do things? Does it spend its money on the lost? Does it spend its time? Does it bring emphasis to reaching the lost? Does it encourage people to be witnessing in their lives? Does it open up opportunities, whether it's through an, an alpha or through outreaches or mercy ministries? Is there a vehicle in place for people to come in contact with the gospel? Or is that something that just exists on paper? So These are, these are vitality components. This is whether the church has passion or not. The last thing I'd look for would be character. Not last, but just certainly part of the list. What character do I observe in the people that are part of the church? Is there Christ-likeness in their character? Is there fruit of the Spirit in their lives? Is there humility? These are all doctrinally driven things. When I see the greatness of God and my own sinfulness, humility is not a real difficult thing. It's my poor doctrine that leads me to be arrogant. You do realize that, don't you? I'll use sovereign grace as an example. I think the reason why all of us would say our experience with sovereign grace has been the experiencing of people who are humble is because they are well taught doctrinally. When you understand the grace of God, it just cuts your legs out from thinking you're something. I am what I am by the grace of God. Well, how arrogant can you possibly be? Well, I could boast. I could do some boasting, couldn't you? In the cross. (laughs) But it's kind of hard for me to boast about something about me. Because I'm saved by the grace of God. I'm interested in God by the grace of God. Pursuing God today by the grace of God. Passion for God by the grace of God. Aware of God by the grace of God. If all that's by the grace of God and not because of some superiority about me, it's very hard for me to feel superior about anything. So these these would be... Essential components. If you're, if you're ever having to look for a church, these would be the vital components for you to look. The doctrinal elements, the, the vitality in the life of the church, and the character of the people, particularly the character of the leaders as well. Now, let me ask the elders. We're going to have a, a 15 minutes of, of question and answer time now. I'm going to ask the elders who are here this morning to go ahead and join me up here. Um, let me Let me just tell you why I've included this particular message in this series. One, because I think it's helpful for us to have the right biblical criteria in place for us to evaluate the local church and our involvement with it. But secondly, these would be components that if I went down a checklist of saying of who we could affiliate with, why would you say you'd want us to affiliate with Sovereign Grace Ministries? Because if I go down this checklist... I get to check all these off. These would be the the dynamics and characteristics of what we've observed as we've walked with those pastors, visited with those people, met people in their churches, observed their practice and their emphasis, their preaching. These would be what we've observed. This would be a a key ingredient as to why we would think of, of all the possibilities for affiliation. Why would we feel strongly about affiliating with Sovereign Grace? These would be essentials for us. Um, we want to do some some question and answer time for you guys again, as we did last week. So uh, you are welcome to ask any questions that have been in your minds as we've gone through these teachings or as we've just talked about Sovereign Grace Ministries, thoughts about affiliation, what it means for us. Um, So if if you don't want to come to the microphone, you're welcome to shout out clearly and loudly your question. I'll repeat it for the sake of the CD. Um, but if you can come to the microphone, come to the microphone, that would be most helpful. No questions, huh? <laughs> All right, let's go. I know there were a few of you guys who, a little different from the first service, many of you guys had some questions we couldn't get to you last week. um, Unless those questions have got answered or you just didn't get a chance to ask them last week, please feel free. Yes, sir. For a greater dimension of fellowship, we just felt like we didn't have, by way of fellowship in the church, what was a biblical norm or biblical practice. There were pockets of good relationships, but not a practice of fellowship. And so we were looking to see how could we improve that? What vehicle could we use to arrive at a biblical uh, example? And so when we began to look at small group dynamics, uh, their model was actually one that we looked at and studied pretty carefully. And what they do with small groups. So actually the book that we used to prepare us to do covenant groups was the book that Sovereign Grace publishes, Why Small Groups? We actually studied through that together as a church and then we broke up into small groups and and began to experiment with that a little bit. So really our covenant group ministry is is just like what you'd find in a Sovereign Grace church. Some of them may do a little bit of the the meetings a little bit differently differently. Uh, There are some churches that might meet meet every week. There are some who might meet once a month. Uh, So there's some difference. But the component of having a small group of people that you intentionally build your life together with, spend time with, relate with, support encourage, and seek to build biblical fellowship with, uh, that's what their goal and aim is. So it really wouldn't change our covenant group dynamic at all. I don't foresee that. Victor. I wasn't here last week. (laughs) Uh, then you weren't here. That's for sure. You didn't stay home that morning. We can tell you that. Um, That would probably still be a question that we're going to pursue some conversation with them about. I don't think any of us would foresee that occurring. But in all fairness to them, as they would come in and evaluate the church, you know they need to have firsthand knowledge of the things that we have have taken time to know about each other, by way of qualifications, level of gifting. Um, those would be dimensions they need to come in and have their hands on a little bit and learn about, and get to know us a little bit better. So I, I can't say that they wouldn't come in and bring some insight that we weren't aware of. I mean that's one of the reasons that we're wanting their influence is knowing that we have a limited view on things and. Could there be things in our midst that somebody would come in and would say, hey, you know, this is going well, this is going well, but, but you guys could really do better in this area, or there's a real weakness in your church in this area. Uh, that's a benefit from apostolic ministry, to take guys who, who their ministry focus is laying foundations and almost architecturing churches. And you know, once you've architectured enough churches, you start learning the church real well, so you can come to another church and you can say, I see these things in place, I see these things weak. And so we want to benefit from that. So I can't rule out the possibility that they wouldn't come in and see some elements in our pastoral team that they would want to uh, encourage some changes or strengthen it somehow. Um, So that's possible. I I, I don't think any of us have felt like we're we're sensing from them some wholesale renovation type thing. I understand. I understand. I understand. So is that what it's going to take, Vic? (laughs) I mean, yeah, you got to (laughs) understand. You got to understand, Vic, we love Peter, but uh, (laughs) everything has its price.